Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is our annual end of year episode, 2020, a year in review. In this episode, we'll be looking back over a very eventful year in emergency management, including our epic disaster highlight reel and some major developments in the field. We'll also be discussing what we think 2021 might have in store, and we'll be sharing a holiday surprise to help you ring in the new year, in an academic way, that is. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian. So a uh, pretty uneventful year, right, Grayson? Not much to mention? (laughs) Grown. Let's just say it was an I told you so year for business continuity professionals. All eyes are obviously on the COVID-19 response, and perhaps next year we'll begin to review some of the COVID-related learnings, including the Ontario Auditor General's report. But for now, while we're still in the midst of the pandemic, I'm sure most emergency managers are pretty up-to-date on it. So we're going to focus on some other disaster news, which, as it turns out, was still a pretty eventful year in 2021. It included multiple new records and Canadian firsts. So let's start off our disaster highlight reel by chatting about the weather. 2020 began with a bang in January, as it always does, with some ice storms. In particular, winter storm Jacob hit St. John's, Newfoundland, and delivered 76 centimeters of snow in a single day, which broke the all-time single-day record, and that last record was made in 1999, so it was a fairly significant record-breaking event. Uh, The storm damaged buildings and power lines and left 21,000 people without power for several days. Uh, Snowdrifts trapped people indoors for days. And interestingly, snowplows were used to transport patients to the hospital, which I thought was pretty cool. Unfortunately, there was one death due to exposure, but encouragingly, I think, there were no carbon monoxide deaths. As you may know, carbon monoxide deaths are the leading cause of death during blizzards and ice storms because people bring their generators inside or uh, sometimes even their barbecues inside to heat their space and, and, of course, die of carbon monoxide poisoning. So maybe the messaging has got out. Yeah, well, as a hyperbaric physician who looks after a lot of uh, CO uh, poisonings, it certainly makes me happy to hear that uh, CO is not a major part of this uh, storm. That's right. But by all accounts, it was a fairly major response and over 300 troops were sent to help with the snow removal. So another successful deployment of the Canadian Armed Forces uh, Shovel Brigade. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In other uh, storm news, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, in Calgary, there was a major hailstorm that took place in June. And it resulted in over $1.2 billion in insurance claims. By contrast, the severe weather for all of 2019 resulted in $1.3 billion of damage according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada. So this was the most costly hailstorm in Canadian history and actually the fourth most expensive disaster overall in Canadian history. You might not have seen much about it if you don't live in western Canada. Uh, the The damage was pretty impressive though for northern uh, Calgary and thankfully it the storm averted uh, a city called Airdrie just outside of Calgary which would have further added to the disaster total. No fatalities but a- another example of just heavy property damage and how, um, how impactful that can be. There's still um, homes and vehicles that uh, you know are, are damaged and have not been repaired fully since the storm. In other weather news, the tornado that struck Verdun, Manitoba claimed the lives of two people, making it one of the more deadly tornadoes in recent history. And interestingly, with this tornado, it was initially ranked as an EF2, 
but upgraded to an EF3 after once they assess the damage. And this actually shows kind of an ongoing issue with this EF rating and tornado awareness in general in, in Canada is that the EF rating can only really be attributed after the fact. And we know that so many tornadoes don't get reported or recorded or hit areas that no damage could occur. So we still don't really have a good idea of the tornado risk across Canada. Yeah, it's certainly some misapplications of that scale. Uh, and there's been some criticisms and maybe uh, not as useful in, in the response and um, you know early warning phases. On to other events, the heat wave in Montreal, um, it was relatively short and uh, uh, did also compound some of the uh, COVID uh, complexities because many Montrealers don't have air conditioning and obviously the most prone communities would be those in congregate living and long-term care facilities. Yeah, I would classify this as a near miss, honestly. Montreal is very prone to heat waves. Uh, There are 800,000 Montrealers that don't even have air conditioning. So throw a pandemic onto that, that would have been a massive drain on healthcare resources. I think we also dodged a bullet in a couple of other places this year, and one of them was fire. It really wasn't that heavy of a fire year across Canada. Uh, There were fires, of course. Red Lake in in northern Ontario was evacuated due to wildfire. Uh, The Christie Mountain wildfire in the Okanagan region caused a few hundred homes to be evacuated. But maybe the big news here is that finally, after five years of Australia sending us firefighting aid, we were finally able to reciprocate and we, we sent 60 firefighters to them to help out with the worst wildfires they've ever had just absolutely catastrophic wildfires in in australia and this was through the canadian interagency forest fire center or ciffc and this has been going on for 40 years and it really is a celebration of this ongoing kind of mutual aid agreement between our two countries which are couldn't be more far apart but are somehow very similar in terms of the the way we have to manage bushfires or forest fires yeah absolutely and in terms of the red lake evacuations i have some personal connections there as well uh, with family that live in the area and it's one of those communities that has a single way in and out so adds uh, another layer of complexity from an evacuation planning standpoint one highway uh, kind of services that community so they really rely on air evacuation and like happened in the 90s they um, you know made steps to preparations for potentially having to evacuate the entire community yeah one of the things i liked about that evacuation was the targeted vulnerable populations first. I I know the definition of vulnerable population is still very much up in the air, but this trend of staged evacuations, even in acute disasters, I think is catching on as we get a little bit more lead time and a little bit more um, practice, honestly, in uh, evacuating communities. Yeah. And learning, you know, from prior lessons about, uh, you know, the importance of pet evacuations and some of the barriers uh, to evacuation, you know, people often won't evacuate without their pets. So it's important to have a plan to, to accommodate people in that sense. Uh, Moving on to floods, uh, it was also a fairly light year, uh, you know, when you look at trends over the past few years in terms of flooding, but we did see some substantial flooding in northern Alberta. Um, uh, Wood Buffalo and Fort McMurray in particular uh, had quite a a busy flood season with most of their downtown uh, being impacted. And this was on top of a community, you know, still recovering from the... um, 
wildfires of 2016 and during the beginning stages of the COVID pandemic, which adds lots of complexities to to the response. Uh, one of the you know organizations that I was involved with uh, um, that has facilities in Fort McMurray uh, had a, a hard lesson in terms of business continuity, uh, thinking that their virtual work from home solution was uh, fully embedded in the cloud, which mostly it was, but it still relied on one critical server, which was in the basement of one of their buildings, which unfortunately was completely flooded, and they lost, uh, um, you know, their ability to work from uh, work from home and, and a lot of uh, data loss. So um, a, a tough lesson learned in terms of uh, business continuity. Yeah, I think what was interesting about this particular event was the the, the timing. I mean, it happened so quickly after some of the first cases of, of COVID in the community that they had to kind of improvise, adapt, and overcome uh, very quickly. That to implement these public health measures in the reception centers, in the evacuee management uh, strategies, as they were being made up. So kind of a kind of a first, and I think something that will stick in terms of disaster management is these new approaches to evacuee management because really the way we were doing it before cramming all these stressed out uh, very you know high-risk individuals into very close quarters that was in hindsight never a good idea (laughs) yeah and and a lot of those lessons are are extending to jurisdictions that attempted to use field hospitals i mean the uh, failure of field hospitals in general is has been fairly well documented during the entire pandemic response and uh, they're very vulnerable just like cruise ships and any other situation when you have people living in close quarters so certainly uh going to be a, a lesson learned there In more tragic news, 2020 saw the deadliest shooting in Canadian history. This was, of course, the Nova Scotia shooting on April 18th and 19th, uh, which began in Porta Peak and ended just north of Halifax in Enfield. 22 people died, three people were injured, but this was such a a complicated event because in addition to the shootings, this individual was setting fires across 16 locations, impersonating police officers, and uh, truly a devastating event for the community. One of the learnings that I think will come out of this was around the use of the alert ready system. So RCMP unfortunately faced a, a fair bit of criticism for not using the public alerting alert ready system to make it known that there was an active shooter in the area. They did communicate. They used social media and and other outlets. They just didn't use the alert-ready system. Uh, So this, as well as a few other things, triggered a full-on public inquiry, not just an internal review, not just an after-action report, but a full-on public inquiry, which uh, should be done somewhere around 2022. Uh, And it triggered RCMP to draft a national policy for emergency alerts as a result of this. I think this actually speaks to a bit of a a trend that I'm seeing or a limitation around public uh, alerting. I don't know if it's quote unquote all hazards enough. You know, it's used very frequently for tornadoes and, and natural hazards. It wasn't used reliably or consistently for pandemic management. And in this case, it wasn't readily available or integrated enough or whatever the case may be for these threat-based disasters. Yeah, I mean, another example in Ontario was the uh, alert-ready system being used for an Amber Alert, uh, which the the alerting component was successful, but uh, the alert directed people to the OPP website to get more information, and they weren't 
uh, you know, expecting the amount of traffic they got and it crashed the website. So um, mm. it ha- like you say, it has to be an integrated uh, uh, offering. Um, you know, back to the Nova Scotia uh, case, I mean, this is just a true tragedy by any definition. And uh, I think we'll go down as a, you know, a, a dark spot in Canadian history. It speaks to the, the nature of a, a a real asymmetrical threat. When you use terms like all hazards, I think it's important to realize that just some of the differences of an intentional attack and how that changes your whole response. I mean, intentionality uh, really differentiates uh, this type of event from from any other hazard, and it actually goes towards uh, attacking your response mechanisms you know impersonated police officers people not feeling safe or knowing if if police were friend or foe uh, i mean this uh you know as complicated of a response as you could have so um you know a very difficult uh, event and we'll stay tuned to see what the recommendations uh, come from it Moving on to other uh, uh, mass casualty incidents, uh, there was an MCI that occurred in a rural part of Alberta this year uh, in Icefields uh, Parkway, uh, just outside of Jasper. For those not familiar with the area, the Columbia Icefield is a, a major glacier that is kind of in between Banff and Jasper National Park, and um, they've got specially equipped snow coaches that can traverse uh, up the glacier and, and allow people to walk on the glacier at the top. Unfortunately, one of them... Uh, Uh, rolled down an embankment resulting in three deaths and 14 serious injuries all critically injured that uh um, it's unusual in terms of MCI response in that uh, there was a significant uh, transport and uh, treatment delay in that inf- in, uh, in that interval. Um, I think the EMS agencies all did an excellent job, but it just shows some of the difficulties of a truly remote MCI, which you know we are prone to in in our geography here in Canada. Most MCIs in urban environments, your treatment and transport uh, intervals are going to be much much shorter. Uh, this. Uh, from a multi-agency response perspective, I think was was flawless. Uh, there was um, full integration, partly because the way EMS and the health system is set up in Alberta, but uh, a fully integrated health and dispatch and EMS service really paid off here. Um, patients uh, were transported and, and kind of load leveled between Calgary, Edmonton and Red Deer, uh, which I think took the strain of uh, the MCA, MCI off of any one facility. And, and hats off to my colleagues who responded to that one. Absolutely. Likewise, yeah. In other MCI news, there was a building collapse in London, Ontario, in which a four-story building uh, partially collapsed due to some ongoing construction work. Building collapses are not very common in Canada, especially ones involving entrapped victims. And this one did. Unfortunately, two people died. One of the victims was entrapped and five people were injured. They were all workers who were part of the the construction uh, project. And this was a massive sustained response Uh, and in fact the heavy urban search and rescue team Canada Task Force 3 from Toronto was deployed to assist uh, in this and interestingly that's the same team that responded to the Elliott Lake mall collapse. Unfortunately the team couldn't do much beyond assess that the building was unsafe to to enter Uh, so those resources were, were almost immediately sent home and there was a need for heavy equipment to extricate the final victim who was recovered more than 24 hours later. The investigation on this is is ongoing, but I'm pretty interested to see the after-action report in terms of the heavy urban search and rescue perspective and how we can maybe better assess the scene before sending a, a, a HUSAR group there. 
Yeah, I mean, I think our HUSAR response system is geared towards, you know, wide area uh, responses like, you know, tornadoes and earthquakes. Um, and it can be difficult to get a an organized response out the door in time just for, uh, you know, a single uh, event like this. But um, anyways, compliments to our colleagues, uh, Task Force mm-hmm. 3. And uh, like after every response, we, we look forward to the, the after action report. Uh, moving on to critical infrastructure, this was one of our uh, prediction areas that if you uh, refer back to our prior episode um, from last New Year's, uh, we predicted more rail incidents in Canada. And unfortunately, we're, we're correct in that prediction. There were several derailments and uh, uh, rail incidents that occurred this year. Um, there were some changes announced by the Federal Transport Minister, Mark Garneau, who ordered that all trains carrying significant amounts of dangerous goods on federal lines needed to, to slow this was in the wake of um, a CP crude oil train that derailed uh, in February and resulted in a voluntary evacuation of the community of Guernsey in, in Saskatchewan. Thankfully, no uh, major injuries or, or damage. Um, but there was uh, lots of concern for livestock, and it kind of speaks to the ongoing issues we're seeing, I think, with some of the safety management systems and aging infrastructure of our national rail network, which should really be a concern for all emergency managers uh, uh, pretty much every community in Canada has uh, some, uh, you know, rail uh, service uh, going through it or near it, and certainly an area we need to be um, expert in and understanding the, the regulatory uh, issues as well as some of the response complexities. I, I think if you can remember this far back as well, another rail uh, incident uh pre-COVID uh, where, where it was the many protests that we saw across the country, um, which seems like a lifetime ago now. But these uh, protests certainly had some critical infrastructure disruption, which was uh, intentional. Um, there was layoffs. There was uh, widespread disruption of via passenger service in eastern Canada, as well as freight service nationally. And this can put emergency managers in a difficult position, obviously very politically and socially complicated uh, and sensitive events and I think it can be difficult sometimes navigating those those complexities but um, you know that's the reality of emergency management and uh, I think having a uh, open communication and uh, involving as many partners as you can is is probably your best defense in these sorts of uh, events. In a bit more lighthearted news, there was a bit of a whoopsie uh, from the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station. They sent out a, a, a false alarm uh, that basically said anyone within 10 kilometers should, should seek shelter due to a nuclear incident. It was a mistake. It was human error. The only real issue that came out of it was that it took almost two hours to correct, and it was very unclear the procedures for taking back a, uh, a disaster notification or a public alert like that. So there was an after action report or an investigation, and I'll put it in the, the show notes, but a couple of the key findings were one around the dangers of prescripted messages. So there were prescripted messages for a nuclear event, but there were not any prescripted messages for an exercise. There were not any prescripted messages for ending an event either. And it took them quite some time to make up their own uh, message and get it approved by a manager, which is not a normal process there, uh, before they could get it out. Number two, 
is the importance of separating the training and the live systems. So in this case, the training system and the live system looked almost identical. They could be open simultaneously, and they didn't need different logins. So if you run a, a similar emergency management uh, system or emergency notification system, rather, I think there are some key lessons learned here that luckily were learned uh, as a result of a, a fairly unimpactful mistake instead of a real event. Yeah, and I think it's important to clarify this wasn't uh, from the actual Pickering Nuclear Generating Station, uh, but rather the uh, the Provincial Operations Center um, and the, the ministry that uh, that they're, they have uh, watch officers. So this was part of an exercise, a daily testing uh, procedure. Um, so it certainly caught the actual uh, uh, power generation uh, <laughs> folks uh, by surprise when they, they saw the alerts as well. All right, and other Canadian firsts. Um, this was uh, also the first time, uh, notably, in Canadian history that all provinces and territories declared various states of emergency simultaneously. So each province and territory uh, in the country had all declared a, a state of emergency, of course, due to COVID-19. Most declared a state of provincial emergency, that was the majority of the provinces, whereas Alberta, PEI, and Quebec declared public health emergencies. Uh, Nunavut, and NWT, and Yukon all declared public health emergencies as well. Um, this is unprecedented, and uh, there was some discussion early on about uh, would the federal government also uh, declare a federal state of emergency, which would be the first time that's uh, done uh, since the uh, the new legislation, uh, the old uh, you know War Measures Act being replaced uh, some years ago. But policy experts say that uh, this might be uh, an indication that we may never see a federal uh, <laughs> federal declaration uh, for a few reasons. One, that it invokes the need for a mandatory public inquiry and review after a declaration. And it's also unclear what exact federal powers uh, you would get from a declaration that would actually be useful. I mean, if you think about it, border closures and all of the other um, uh, you know, financial uh, programs that were started really didn't require any federal declaration. So if you're not going to get any extra powers, then what's the what's the point? Um, anyways, uh, interesting uh, Canadian first that all provinces uh, had a state of emergency. And every province, of course, has its own jurisdictional nuances between what exactly a public health emergency does versus a provincial state of emergency. But in general, the provincial states of emergency are normally declared under a more general emergencies law, and that gives uh, um, power to uh, cabinet and um, uh, you know elected officials, whereas the public health emergencies are declared under pu public health law, and that gives authority more to either a minister of health or a chief medical officer of health to make uh, public health policies and, and restrictions. Yeah, it was really interesting to see the way that different pieces of legislation and different organizations organizations arranged themselves to posture towards COVID-19. You know, not every province even has a provincial health emergency or that sort of legislation in place. Uh, so uh, this actually got me thinking about what COVID was doing to highlight some of the vulnerabilities in emergency management or what changes we were being forced to make. So Josh, what did what did COVID make you reconsider? 
Well, I, I think from emergency management in general, I, early on, I think a lot of emergency managers struggled a little bit with actually finding their role. This is such a, mm-hmm. a huge uh, societal impact. Uh, there's obviously no one emergency scene. Uh, it's happening simultaneously in multi- multiple jurisdictions. And, you know, in every kind of emergency plan that you look at, there's kind of an annex for a, a pandemic or influenza, which a lot of the guidance wasn't useful for COVID uh, being a, a different uh, disease. And I, I think we, we were, did find some difficulty early on knowing what exactly is the role of emergency management. Uh, you know, standing up a municipal EOC certainly uh, might help with some business continuity functions and, and things early on. But uh, being a fundamental public health emergency, it's certainly out of the wheelhouse for most emergency managers, unless you're, you know, involved with public health or, uh, you know, healthcare emergency management more generally. So I think it it, it kind of challenged some of our uh preconceived notions about all hazards response and uh, uh, just such a a different threat that uh, it made it difficult early on. Yeah, I would concur. I had the opportunity to work with a number of municipalities and the differences between them were vast. And it really was an exercise in finding your role. There were no assigned positions. There was no jurisdiction having authority at a municipal level. It was all following this new leader of of a health authority that was a little bit vague in some places and, and uh, was certainly different than operating for a wildfire or something like that. However, I will say that there were a number of impacts that kind of mimicked other disasters. And I think all hazard preparedness still had a role to play. You know, COVID caused housing crisis and economic crisis and business crises. These are all the same sorts of things that any infrastructure damage or disaster would cause. But because it was COVID, a lot of the funding attached to standing up an ESS branch, for example, didn't exist. So some of the mechanisms that we would normally use to address these all hazards impacts were basically impotent during this. So I think I think there's a lot to do to to correct uh, the the quote unquote all hazard infrastructure that we have in Canada to actually make it all hazards or. We need to rethink our definition of what all hazards even means. Well, I think, yeah, it speaks to the fact that one plan, uh, you know, there's certainly skill sets that are useful uh, in any disaster, you know, being a good communicator, crisis communicator, understanding risk, uh, being able to collaborate, set objectives, you know, that sort of thing, I, I think are universal. But our kind of one plan fits all of like standing up an EOC and thinking we're going to manage the event, uh, I agree, doesn't necessarily fit. And uh, this was something that had jurisdictional challenges in a lot of areas and Mm -hmm. uh, was beyond the jurisdictional scope of a lot of municipalities. Um, And if we, you know, use some imagination here, it's pretty easy to think of other areas where, you know, things that would certainly qualify as disaster might not easily fit into our all hazards approach where there's really siloed technical expertise and your ability to respond uh, might, you know you're not certainly not the first agency and you're probably not the first second third or fourth agency um, that necessarily can can lead a response um, examples being like you know cyber threats or uh, you know crop failures and widespread uh, you know droughts and other sorts of uh, um, you know large area disasters uh, that are multi-jurisdictional I, I think it is 
important for emergency managers to pause and reflect on what our role was. Did we fulfill our uh, you know, advertised role of being uh, able to manage anything that comes our way? And what can we do next time to, to really serve our communities as, as robustly as possible? Well, as it turns out, we weren't the only ones who noticed that COVID was a good chance to, to re-examine the way we do business. And in fact, it's been a very active year for researchers. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see some of the research coming out of COVID as it applies to emergency management. Uh, in fact, one study of Canadian emergency managers by Dr. Richmond from the uh, University of Sheffield, of all places, uh, came across my, my radar. And we were lucky enough to connect with the researchers in a quick little interview on how Canadian emergency managers adapted to COVID. So I'm John Richmond. Um, I'm an assistant professor of healthcare management and leadership at the University of Sheffield. And um, I, I started my career in health management, uh, working in the insurance sector in New Brunswick and uh, also did a stint in the USA. Uh, doing some health informatics type work. But I had an opportunity to take a position um, as a risk manager for the Moncton Hospital. And uh, when I was there, I was involved in a lot of kind of um, patient safety investigations, root cause analysis. Um, but the summer before I left uh, was actually when, when the Moncton shootings had occurred. I, I, I remember um, getting a phone call um, about the events that were going down and that our uh, emergency operations center was being formed. And uh, I remember my first task was, uh, as a risk manager, was taking uh, bullet fragments out uh, and giving them to, to the RCMP so I think they could look at and see what sort of weapon they were dealing with. Um, but I saw how the lines of communication were set up between you know, the police, the city, the hospital, and so on. And here we are quite a few years later and the COVID-19 pandemic has hit us. And the first thing I thought of when it hit was how has the you know, response or how have we responded and what has been the role of emergency management? We, we really wanted to understand just how effective the planning activities that were undertaken by emergency managers in Canadian healthcare organizations have been. Um, and then as well, we wanna understand you know, how the response went. And what we mean by that is, you know, what maybe were some emergent responsibilities that, emer that emergency managers ended up picking up as part of their job roles. And, you know, further to that is we want to look at the incident command structures that are in place. Um, because something we know from, from research is that these, you know, ICS type structures, you know, some of the things that we're exploring is that these structures are great for kind of um, discrete emergencies, but maybe not so great for things like prolonged humanitarian crises, which is what COVID is, is becoming. So in terms of the study, I would call this an exploratory mixed method study. And phase one is a survey. And the purpose of the survey, and it is pan-Canadian, what were the activities that you had done prior to the date that an emergency uh, was enacted in your province? Because uh, I believe that a, a state of emergency was declared in, in each province. And so we want to understand, you know, you know, um, talking about things like pandemic plans, you know, when was the last time your pandemic plan was updated? Um, and then, you know, talking about things like 
you know, tabletop exercises, talking about simulations, talking about, um, you know, setting up EOCs, setting up virtual EOCs, for example, um, to, to gauge the professionals and get their perspectives on how effective those activities were. So phase one is about building a really interesting data set about that emergency management community in, in Canada and how effective the response has been. Um, in phase two, we want to look at the descriptive statistics from the survey to drill a bit deeper to actually do some semi-structured interviews to dig a bit deeper into some areas of interest um, that we're just starting to find um, in, in the survey phase. And then, of course, um, from an impact perspective, we really want to feedback. I think, I think that the moment could be lost and we could lose the opportunity to learn from the pandemic. So we want to um, understand basically what has been effective and where the gaps are um, to develop a bit of uh, a, a recommendation list that we can bring forward um, for consideration by the EM community. That's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that you are including those without a formal emergency management title. I think many of the people working in uh, what we'll quote unquote say is emergency management now didn't consider themselves to be emergency managers pre-pandemic. What have you found out so far and how do you think this might be useful going forward in emergency management? You know, one of the interesting ones um, kind of pertains to the incident command structures that were um, enacted. And really what that is, is about when it was enacted, who essentially was selected in your organization to lead the health emergency incident command system. And what we found is actually um, more than half, we found that it was led by a non-medical executive. The actual emergency managers themselves, uh, there was quite a minority of times where they were actually leading the uh, incident command structure. And if we look at that a little deeper, what's interesting is to understand whether those um, execs or others that were appointed to lead were trained um, in, in um, emergency management and in the features of an, of an emergency command system. And I can say that, you know, it doesn't look like that was always the case, but, you know, these, this is research that, that is not complete at this time. We need to keep exploring these concepts. Once the study is completed, uh, we'd be happy to come back on and give you a full, uh, full rundown of the results. How do you think this research will help advise future practice and what gaps do you expect to, to identify? I, I think, Grayson, that this is a, a time, um, you know, typically EM has been kind of a bit of a back office player in a sense in terms of developing the planning, developing the infrastructure. I think what this has done is actually it's an opportunity to put EM a bit in the spotlight um, and to be able to, um, uh, you know, essentially look at it and essentially highlight the contribution that it has made in preparing the provinces for COVID. I mean, something I'm I, that I'm going to include in this study is a, is a heat map of cases by province. And although this is not a clinical study, it is organizational. I think what's quite interesting is if you look at provinces like Alberta, they've kept their case rates very low until recently. And I think, a, I think a lot of that is attributed to, well, there's a couple of factors. One, you have one dedicated health system. But in addition to that, you've, you've dealt with a lot of emergencies in the last 20 years in Alberta. And that's allowed you to develop the resiliency and the capability. And furthermore, 
each province is a bit different in how their healthcare is organized and how their emergency uh, management structures are integrated with things like provincial government, um, you know, long-term care, different different forms of care. And so I, I think there's going to be a lot of divergences here in terms of um, the response by province. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, there is a need to understand the effectiveness of these sort of emergency preparedness, emergency management systems, because, um, you know, we're, we're lacking studies on how effective they are and, and how they operate um, and how to deal with, you know, ramping up and, and ramping down as these, you know, phases of things like pandemics occur. So I really see this study as exploratory. It's, it's the tip of the iceberg. Um, but I think we're going to have some some really interesting findings uh, here about Canada. And um, I'd, I'd like to, you know, also say that, you know, at a, at a federal, at a national level, I think more funding is required for uh, research, um, you know, in this area within, within the country. So understanding the organizational impact on the national response to this massive pandemic sounds like a very worthwhile goal. And we will include the link to fill out the survey uh, to this study in the show notes here. So please take a moment after the show to fill out the survey and contribute to emergency management research. Great uh, discussion there, Grayson. Yeah, I'm very interested to see the results of that. Moving back to some of the events of this year, there were a couple of landmark events that I think are worthy of mention. One is that BC released the new and improved Canadian Post-Disaster Building Assessment Tool. Now, this is very similar to the uh, rapid damage assessment that we're familiar with, uh, where individuals uh, assess damaged buildings to see if there's a danger to rescuers, except this one goes a a little bit more of a, a step forward and assesses whether or not we can put people back in them. So the idea is to relieve a lot of the stress from the response by rapidly moving people back into their homes, if possible, and if safe to do so. So there's a a lot of technical information uh, and expertise required, but it could be distilled down uh, to a simple training program. And that is one of the things that's being done. In fact, they are building this building assessor registry of people who have taken the training and might be immediately available post earthquake, let's be realistic here, uh, to go and do these sorts of assessments. So it's the first of its kind in Canada. uh, And this registry permit BC housing to rapidly link assessors with communities requiring their services. So I think it's a a big step forward in terms of rapid response and rapid recovery to one of uh, Canada's looming disasters. Yeah, I think BC is uh, yet again being a trendsetter in emergency management. This is very forward thinking. And there's no reason why we need to reinvent, you know, reentry planning after every disaster. Um, And having a skilled uh, pool of people that uh, uh, could serve in these roles ahead of time, I think is just an excellent, uh, um, excellent work. So looking forward to to following that program. Another I think quite huge advancement in the field of emergency management is happening in Alberta, where flood mapping is finally, finally on the radar and on the agenda 
for emergency managers. So there is a, uh, a flood study engagement going on where many of the commonly flooding areas uh, are being assessed and publicly evaluated in terms of the response and, and mitigations. And I guess this is a bit of a call to action here is that if you are in emergency management, doesn't even have to be in Alberta, and have interest in uh, flood mitigation, please, please, please go to the alberta.ca slash flood study engagements page and put in your comments because this is going to change the way that we manage floods. It's going to change the way that we perceive risk in Alberta, if not Canada. And flood zone mapping has been a thorn in the side of Canadian EM for years. Yeah, and I think it's progressive how a lot of municipalities are putting their flood maps uh, online to be freely available. So you could uh, just type in your address and actually look at your individualized risk. And I think we talk a lot about risk personalization. That is that that is it in, in action. So uh, uh, data is power in these situations. Okay, up next, uh, what we've all been waiting for, we promised you a, a holiday surprise. So drum roll, please. Here it is. Uh, the Canadian Journal of Emergency Management is releasing its first ever inaugural issue today. So uh, hopefully that will provide some, some light reading for you over the holidays. We're really excited about uh, this work. And let's hear from the CGEM team. My name is Simon Wells. I'm the founder and chief executive officer of the Canadian Journal of Emergency Management. Uh, myself, I have uh, experience in multiple levels of government and emergency management uh, in EM program and operations and planning and especially logistical roles. Uh, and I've done a lot of volunteerism, uh, also been involved with the 1033 network as a business continuity consultant and uh, done some some work on COVID-19 research as a, as a volunteer uh, research assistant and some equity causes as well. And the Canadian Journal of Emergency Management is uh, what you would think it is by the name, uh, but it's a volunteer-run initiative uh, that is launching a professional journal for practitioners to access content and to create content uh, relevant to them and relevant to the profession of emergency management in Canada. Fantastic. Is there anything like this right now in Canada? Any other journals? You know, not that we know of. There's a lot of fantastic work that's being uh, being done out there by the, uh, the Hazard Network, uh, by scholars in, in Canada and practitioners who have lessons learned to, to share. Uh, but there is not one forum in a place that presents uh, vetted lessons learned, uh, new ideas generated from the field and scholarship with, uh, with impact uh, in one place for both of those communities, both practitioners and scholars uh, to read and, and to learn from each other. So it sounds like a, a gap that needs to be filled here. Tell us about the journal. Well, absolutely. Um, the need is, is, is complex in that uh, Canadian emergency managers uh, really are left to rely on uh, predominantly American doctrine and training to advance their professional skills. And of course, you know, uh, there are a lot of talented emergency managers in Canada and a lot of uh, organizations that, uh, that do emergency management very well. But uh, there are places or there are gaps, I should say, in that we don't have that central center of excellence the way that the United States does in FEMA. And being a former employee of Public Safety Canada, again, a place that is you know, under-resourced, but chock full of uh, very intelligent people and capable people who are dedicated to their jobs. Uh, I remember going and, and meeting with partners uh, all the time, and they said they would shake their hand, heads and say, oh, you're from Public Safety Canada. They should never have closed the college. And they were referring to the Canadian Emergency Management College, which was where we got that those concepts and those doctrines doctrine that we would take into our profession as emergency managers. So uh, I, I've noticed this need for some time and uh, 
uh, really felt like there needed to be that that forum. And I, I certainly looked for it as I questioned what it means to be uh, an emergency manager in Canada and how we do our job as emergency managers in Canada. Uh, and so I went out and decided to try and uh, to fill that gap. And we started with inquiries uh, directly to institutions with major EM programs. Uh, so we found that <laughs> this coincided with the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we didn't really have uh, time or resources with our partners uh, available. Uh, and so I decided to do this as a grassroots uh, initiative and do it on the strength of volunteers and bearing minimal costs uh, uh, myself and to launch this this forum. And I think it's really important uh, to have a strong identity as, as Canadian emergency managers because our reality uh, in terms of the operating space we work in, the demographics uh, of our country, uh, our population uh, centers, even just, you know, Canadian governance and the, and the fact the Canadian federal system or works very differently from the American Republican system requires us to think differently than, than some of the doctrine that we're forced to rely on. And that's not a slight against American emergency managers at all. Uh, it's just a different reality. So reflecting that very Canadian context seems to be core in, in the development of this journal. Who's the target and where are you hoping to generate content from? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is really uh, one and the same in that we're hoping that the contributors and the target audience will be uh, primarily practitioners. It's really intended to be a professional journal about the profession of emergency management. And from there, we're hoping to take that operational level reality for Canadian emergency managers uh, capture their ideas and their lessons learned and their best practices, uh, and then feed that back into the community and feed that back into the scholarly world to gain insight on what actually happens in EM in Canada. So we're hoping that the, the contributors uh, will offer their insights and that uh, other practitioners will benefit from them. Uh, that's not to say that uh, you know we don't uh, have interest in what our scholarly partners have to say. In fact, we have an editorial board, which is comprised of some very significant emergency management scholars and, and risk scholars. But really what we want to do is, is always ask the question, so what? You know, so what does this mean? What does this mean for the EM coordinator or the, you know, the, the planning situation unit in an EOC? What is the takeaway uh, in your preparedness and response and recovery and mitigation activities? Uh, and really, you know, there's another side of this in that we are, uh, we're a huge country with very different realities across the country for EM. And so we're, we're hoping to access a multiplicity of views uh, from a pan-Canadian audience. And we worked really hard to uh, access networks from across the country. So that's central nexus for information sharing. That's, that's going to be great. How are we going to prevent this from coming kind of an opinion journal? What sort of infrastructure do you have in place to ensure rigor for this journal? That's a really important question. So we've established an advisory and editorial board, which consists of six scholars with uh, a diversity of uh, viewpoints and expertise. There's membership from each of the, the major academic programs in emergency management in Canada, although we're not affiliated with the institutions, uh, that their members are members of the board. And uh, I'm sorry, I should say that there's six uh, board members. There's actually uh, four academics and two practitioners there. Uh, there's also um, a, a range of, of competencies there. So uh, we're looking at expertise in uh, gender and emergency management, in strategic foresight, in risk, uh, in technology, in national security. Uh, and emergency social services and disabilities and, and disabled people in, in emergencies. Uh, so we've got some really interesting points of view that we bring, and uh, we've established a, a fairly standard single-blind peer review process uh, that replicates that of uh, any other similar journal. 
And so we're really applying uh, standards and are working towards uh, ISO standards for uh, open access journals. And we've done a lot of work to establish processes that make the content that we, uh, that we promulgate legitimate content and content that has been invented by people who are very, very knowledgeable in this trade uh, and ensuring that there's uh, a mix of a practitioner and scholarly representation in that assessment. What is the application process like? Well, the application process is, again, it's quite simple uh, and it's similar to uh, other professional journals. Uh, really, what we do is we look for a proposal uh, explaining what the intent of the article is and, and overviewing how it might take shape. Uh, we review the uh, proposal and approve it in, in concept or ask for uh, updates. And then we will take the submission in uh, by a submission deadline and review the, the article in full or the manuscript in full. And uh, if comments are offered, we work with uh, the author uh, with the goal of producing the content. Our goal is always to publish content. It's not to you know put a big rubber stamp on it and say, no, uh, re reject it. We want to we want to access this knowledge. Uh, so uh, we work with them to uh, make this content uh, uh, publishable in in CGEM, and uh, and then from there uh, uh, work to uh, to put it online in a, in an open access format. So we're actually offering open access content. There's no uh, account required. There's no payment required. Anything like that. It's totally open access. Uh, and then anybody who wants to read or review it or cite it uh, can do that. And so uh, uh, we're actually working on uh, or looking towards uh, a volume two, issue one, as we get ready to launch uh, volume one, issue one. And we're hoping to replicate this process uh, twice a year and hopefully scale up in the coming five years or so to afford the publication. So we've talked about where the gap is in the profession. What about the professionals? How can EM professionals benefit from being involved in, in this initiative? I think that's, that's a great question because uh, there's a lot of really, really talented and innovative emergency managers in Canada. And if you work in EM in Canada, you know what it is to be under-resourced and to have a lot of attention drawn to your role in times of crisis and then probably to be ignored thereafter. And so you spend a lot of time educating yourself and training yourself uh, on what your role is, and again, using content from our American brothers and sisters that is designed for them and not for us. And so in terms of developing as professionals, uh, you know, I think it's really important that uh, we take the time to ask the questions and seek the answers to uh, the realities that we need to prepare for in EM and to, uh, to catch up with the changing risk environment that we're working in. Uh, I mean, there's going to be dramatic changes uh, to emergency management as uh, the, the risk environment changes due to um, growing inequality, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all, all the risks that uh, and, and drivers that we're, you know, very well versed in. There's also uh, a positive change in that for the first time probably ever, and I guess maybe in the last 10 years or so, this has been true, uh, emergency managers are no longer stumbling into this trade. Uh, there's programs that are pushing out trained emergency managers uh, who, granted, you know, haven't had the opportunity to work in the field yet, but these are people who are seeking their first jobs in emergency management. And to them, I think it's important uh, to explain to them what an emergency manager is in terms of the basic characteristics and tenets of the job. I mean, it's, it's great to know what the incident command system is or the incident management system if you're on, in Ontario, but that doesn't really take you through... Uh, the reality of your work on a day on a day to day basis, and uh, you know the point I always make when I when I speak to uh, and I have the privilege of speaking to uh, people who are looking to break into the field or are new in the field is pointing out that 
you know, the tools that we use on a, on a daily basis are really like project management skills and governance skills. I mean, we work with agendas and, you know, working groups and committees and things like that. And so uh, it's great to to have an ICS title or an affinity for a certain you know, role within the incident command system. But if you don't know how to uh, to execute a project, like a mitigation project or a planning project with a joint planning team with people who you, know, you don't really have authority over, uh, and you're working in a joint planning team or something like that, you know, those are those are challenges that we don't prepare for. And so uh, we have an opportunity to discuss what this really is and what the, how this happens in Canada. Where can listeners go to find out more? They can go to uh, www dot cdnjem.ca that's cdnjem.ca uh, they can also follow us on linkedin and there uh, they will find lots of content promoting uh, um, new articles that are coming forth in our uh, volume one issue one our inaugural issue as well as drawing their attention to uh, future submission deadlines and on the website themselves they'll also find submission instructions uh, which and we invite them to uh, to work through the process with us uh, and to read the inaugural issue there Simon, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast. I'm very much looking forward to reading uh, the the very first release of CGEM, and we'll certainly look forward to working with you uh, in close partnership in the future. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to speak with you and the work that you guys are doing as well. So I think this is just a very exciting project. It's really going to showcase some of the excellent uh, uh, Canadian-based emergency management research, and it's a big step forward for our entire profession. So hats off to the CGEM group, and we look forward to uh, continuing uh, to highlight their work on EPIC. Speaking of showcasing expertise, we were also very lucky this year to attend several online conferences. Uh, A number of Canadian disaster conferences had to move, of course, to this new online format, and this included the inaugural virtual CRHNet version of the longstanding DRR Roundtable, a truly excellent virtual crisis communication conference put on by our friends at the Centre for Crisis and Risk Communication, and a very well-organized virtual DEMCON immersive experience, which we were happy to virtually host. Yeah, I, th- I really enjoyed the uh, the virtual nature of those uh, meetings, and um, you know it's certainly different from being face to face. But there's a lot of benefits to having one on one, you know, FaceTime with people and uh, not having to line up for buffets and things. So I certainly enjoyed the conference, and I think uh, if an emergency management conference can't adapt and overcome, I mean that is the nature of our business. So I'm glad to see that uh, our industry was leaders and uh, in-, in this and. and Demcom really uh, had a, an innovative platform and uh, user experience. So uh, looking forward to future virtual conferences and eventually uh, in-person conferences once we're all vaccinated. <laughs> On to awards. Uh, there were quite a few emergency management awards uh, this year from various uh, provincial organizations. Uh, but we'd just like to highlight one through our uh, partnership with IAM. Uh, and in particular, we'd like to give a shout out to Erica Fleck, who is the Division Chief of Emergency Management at Halifax Regional Municipality and was recognized internationally at the IAEM Awards this year. So congratulations, Erica. If you'd like to see other award winners, you can head over to the IAEM website and uh, see the full listing of all of this year's uh, uh, awards. On maybe a bit more of a personal note, I'd really like to give a shout out and a thank you to uh, ex-chief 
Tom Sampson, who has been the fearless leader for the Calgary Emergency Management Agency for years and years and years. He really has been a very influential leader in the field. He's gathered the big city emergency managers together from across the country. He's driven a lot of the uh, engagement strategy and risk um, personalization and, and assessment uh, tools that are now used in, in Calgary. And he was a force to be reckoned with during COVID and a, a very verbal and fierce uh, warrior for a lot of the the public health measures, a huge ally to preparedness in general, and he is now retired. Uh, And one of the cool things that that happened after his retirement is they dedicated the media uh, room to him in the Calgary Emergency Management Emergency Operations Center. So huge thanks to Tom Sampson, who, uh, uh, aside from being an incredible emergency manager, has been a bit of a, a personal mentor to both Josh and myself. Absolutely. Congratulations and enjoy retirement. Uh, Okay, Grayson, let's uh, just recap a little bit. That was a bit of a whirlwind experience. What were some of your favorite uh, moments, if you had any, of this uh, very disruptive Um, year? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of moments in 2020. I don't know how many of them were favorites. Uh, I have to say, actually, one of my favorite moments was when the breweries were finally allowed to produce hand sanitizer. Getting that first uh, bottle of hand sanitizer in a, in a wine bottle and pouring the rather smelly <laughs> but very, very strong and effective hand sanitizer out was pretty cool. To, and just to think that this industry, this kind of pleasure, uh, you know, quote-unquote non-essential industry, although I'm sure many viewers would, would debate that, uh, retooling into an essential service during a pandemic, that's just... Like that's that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, it's a great example of a whole of society response and uh, you know society organizing collectively. Um, yeah, it was it was uh, pretty neat to see. Um, you know, for me, one of the uh, uh, interesting cultural, uh, I guess, changes it has been our adoption of all these Zoom meetings and all of the the kind of subculture that has come out of uh, Zoom meetings for people having, you know, this concept of a Zoom shirt, which is basically just your one, um, you know, uh, office shirt, (laughs) professional looking shirt that you keep hung up by your desk now. So you can uh, be, uh, you know, in in sweatpants for most of the day and then just put on your Zoom shirt (laughs) for the one hour meetings as they come up. Um, (laughs) So it's something we can all look back and and laugh at. And um, anyways, I I think uh, it has changed the way we communicate. changed the way we um, we do business and uh, I think some of the changes uh, you know certainly with healthcare virtual medicine digital healthcare are, are here to stay and uh, this is uh, the COVID has been a massive disruptor and uh, when we you know fast forward in history I think we'll look back at this time as being a pivotal pivotal moment for a lot of uh, industries. So that's 2020 reviewed. What can we expect in 2021? I really do hope at a personal level, as somebody who looks after uh, uh, COVID patients on a daily basis, that we um, see an end to this pandemic. The uh, personal toll uh, on communities and um, anybody who's been directly impacted by uh, a loved one uh, falling ill, um, I think this is something we're all looking forward to putting in the rearview mirror. Uh, Certainly there's been no shortage of hair 
heroism and people that have um, really stepped up to help uh, their communities in a time of need. Uh, I'm looking forward to an effective rollout of a a vaccination program. Um, The ingenuity, and uh, I don't think people quite appreciate the impressive scientific breakthroughs that have happened to to actually get three separate uh, uh, vaccines that are all from from best reports seem very effective uh, in such a short period of time including novel uh, you know molecular technology I, I think it's just a, a testament to uh, humanity we've been able to do that so hopefully we can uh, make the rollout effective and uh, manage the disinformation and uh, get uh, vaccinated and get this uh, uh, pandemic uh, managed i think we're all there with you I-, I wouldn't be surprised if we also see some of the the normals the ice storms the floods the fires etc cetera, etc cetera. but one of the things that I'm a little bit worried about is how far behind a lot of emergency management organizations are on their planning and preparedness for other disasters. I can perhaps best speak for myself when I say I haven't had a chance to focus on anything other than COVID response and a lot of my other preparedness responsibilities have simply gone unattended and I'm a little bit concerned that we might see some of the uh, the fallout from that. Yeah, I mean, in-person training is just a non-starter for most organizations. And uh, there's a lot of, you know, other work that's been delayed and projects that have been delayed. So hopefully we'll see some managing of, uh, of priorities and we'll be able to ensure that we remain ready for other hazards. And perhaps this is just a little bit of my optimism and naivety showing through, but I have never experienced emergency management being in such a spotlight as it has been in 2020. And I'm hoping that that will continue into 2021 in a positive way. I think emergency management organizations that have found their role during COVID uh, might be relied on a bit more heavily in the future, might get a little bit more credit, might get a little bit more funding. Uh, I I think that emergency management has the opportunity to kind of leapfrog forward a little bit here. So I'm I'm hoping uh, that 2021 will be another big year for emergency management and, and keeping our profession in the spotlight. Yeah, I mean, certainly from, you know, our other response partners in public health, uh, I think there's been a lot of uh, collective awareness uh, that, you know, has changed how many people could name their medical officer of health, you know, prior to the pandemic. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I I think there's been a a, a big cultural awakening to the concepts of preparedness, uh, business continuity, uh, and this will probably be the largest policy window uh, that we'll ever have in our careers, um, you know, once uh, in the immediate aftermath of COVID. Uh, So I I do think there's a a large opportunity there that hopefully we can take advantage of. Um, In terms of uh, some New Year's resolutions, uh, Grayson, anything on your list? Yes, as is the tradition, we like to try and, and set some goals for the new year. So coming soon to Epic Podcast, you can look forward to an episode on disaster myths and legends, uh, an episode, in-depth episode on flood insurance and the long-awaited and much procrastinated ICS debate. So we are going to go head to head to discuss the merits of the incident command system. What is it? Does it work? And should it be the only tool in the emergency manager's toolbox for managing these sorts of events? Oh, I'm excited. That's going to be good. The great ICS debate. That's right. Hopefully I don't lose my job over it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, finally, before we close out the year, I want to thank the Alberta Podcast Network for sponsoring us again this year. If you don't know, APN is a coalition of amazing podcasts from all over Alberta, and you should check them out at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Uh, one you might like to watch is on brand for 2020 is the It's a Conspiracy podcast, uh, who have put together a quick promo for your listening pleasure. It's a conspiracy! All right. It's a Conspiracy is the podcast where we lay out the beliefs behind selected conspiracy theories, alternative accounts, legends, myths, and more. We do our best to present these without coloring them with our opinion until the end, where we let our feelings fly. We also do beer reviews, chat about geek culture, and whatever else strikes our fancy. Good times. And we're a part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. This episode is also brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you are a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to your community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome services, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your energy from. Park Power has low overhead, and chances are you'll save money if you switch. You can find out how much money you would save by visiting parkpower.com. .ca and plugging your numbers into the Alberta Energy Savings Calculator. If you decide to switch, it's easy. Nothing changes about your service, only the price you pay. Again, learn more at parkpower.ca. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast and the 2020 season. If you'd like to find out more or get in touch, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca, send us a tweet to username epic underscore underscore podcast, or visit our website at www.epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening and happy new year to you and yours. Stay safe. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ETV. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.